Okay, hello, and welcome back to the Book on Fire podcast. Welcome back. Uh, we are happy to be back with y'all. Been really appreciating uh, the emails and communications that we've been getting. Thank you so much. Uh, keep them coming, y'all. It really keeps us going with this project. And if you like our podcast and you think other people might enjoy it, do share it with your friends who might be interested in it. And if you want to, you can even go over to iTunes and give us a rating or a review. I think that those things actually really help uh, expand the listenership and expand the conversation. We are about to start talking about chapter four. Today we're going to talk about chapter four and chapter five of Staying with the Trouble. Chapter four is called Making Kin, Anthropocene, Capitalocene, Plantationocene, Thulucene. Now, if you've been paying attention at all, then none of those words should be unfamiliar to you. Making Kin is uh, in the subtitle of the entire book, Making Kin and the Thulucene, and we've already talked at length about um, the different naming schemas for the current time that we are living through. This one just briefly touches on a new one, Plantationocene, uh, which we're not even really going to go over. Um, but yeah, the chapter is only about five pages long, and I would say that the first half or two-thirds of it is Haraway going back over stuff that we've talked about. Most of these chapters were previously published essays, so there is like a repetitive, or we might say that there's a kind of a quality of a refrain. Mm -hmm. There's like these refrains that keep coming back through, and the refrain of the need for a term like Thulucene, uh, the refrain of these concepts about making kin. What is unique to this chapter is that she unveils her slogan for the 21st century, her slogan for the Thulucene, which is make kin, not babies. Uh, and she kind of saves that for the end. And we're going to get to that. But in the recapitulation, in the kind of re repetition of some of the book's main themes that leads up to her unveiling of that slogan, there are a couple of things in here that we haven't talked about yet on the podcast and that and that we wanted uh, to bring in. And they both have to do, it all has to do with the concept of the Anthropocene or the Thulucene and kind of what it means, you know. Yeah, and one of the things that we wanted to touch on uh, in all of the talk about the Anthropocene is a definition or a characterization of the Anthropocene that Anna Singh has made that Haraway references here in this chapter. One of the ideas introduced here that comes from Anna Singh is that the shift from the Holocene to the Anthropocene um, can actually be defined by the wiping out of refugia. Um, and refugia are areas where there is still a lot of complexity and biodiversity and richness that works as kind of a bank to seed other areas that have been developed. And so it would be like a intact forest next to a clear cut, you know, having these spaces that are refugia for wildlife and for plants that uh, different species can move out from to repopulate areas that have been impacted more by um, human action. Actually, one of my first 
I just want to throw in that one of the first places that I came across this term of a refugia uh-huh. in ecology was living in the Southern Appalachians, oh, right. where we yeah. live here. Uh, the Southern Appalachian mountain ranges acted as a refugia, a refuge. Mm-hmm. Is refugia plural of refuge? Mm, not exactly. Okay. Acted as a refuge for species during the Ice Age. Right. Right, so the ice sheets flowed around the southern Appalachians, but the glaciers did not cover them. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of the parts of the continent that were just covered over in glacier, uh, when, when the glaciers retreated, the southern Appalachians had acted as a refuge. And then so the landscape around the southern Appalachian mountains was repopulated from the, the bank. Right. You know, that were the Southern Appalachians. So it can be something that is relevant, not just to human caused well, disturbances. And too. actually, yeah. she's appropriating it from the language around glaciation. Oh, okay. Um, so yeah, yeah. I just looked and actually refugia is a plural, but it's a plural of refugium. Got it. Um, and a refugium is an area in which a population of organisms can survive through a period of unfavorable conditions, especially glaciation. Um, mm. she's taking the term to refer to the period, the places of refuge that species can, animals and plants can hold out. And I would also say people living in community with the land would be included in this refugia idea. Mm-hmm. Um, that those pockets, uh, or banks of places where things are more intact. Mm-hmm. Um, and ecosystems are more intact with and without humans mm-hmm. are being wiped out. And that is what Anna Singh says might be the mark of the change right. that is going between the Holocene, what determines the Anthropocene in relation to the Holocene is right. the removal or eradication of these refugia. Like hot spots of biodiversity. Right. Sort of. That work to help keep alive those uh, species that would be reseeding yeah. the spots that have been already devastated. Yeah. Um, and another point that Haraway makes in this section, which I think is interesting, is that she sees the Anthropocene or the Thulucene itself as not a era, but more of a boundary event, and a boundary event meaning a time of change that is between other eras, other geologic eras, and she points to the example of the KPG boundary event, which is when the transition from the Cretaceous period to the Paleogenic period, or Paleogene period, uh, happened, and that that boundary was, that's the, maybe the most famous extinction, mass extinction, which is when the dinosaurs, all of the dinosaurs except some of the bird-like dinosaurs, when extinct, um, that it was actually just, it's a, it's kind of a blip in the strata, even though it might have been a very long time for the species that lived through that or that died in that period and went extinct in that period. It actually mm-hmm. is just a stripe in the geologic record. And she's positing, along with other theorists, that the Anthropocene is also a blip or could be a blip or a stripe in the strata of the geologic record which helps us realize kind of more of the scale in which we're dealing. But also she's arguing that we make that strata 
um, and transition to the next place uh, as quick as possible, but not in a destructive way. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. She she's proposing that it might be helpful to reframe the Anthropocene as a transition, right? Instead of a whole new era, right? That we're just in indefinitely, right? Yeah, is that this is a transitional area? This is a transitional era of rapid change, destabilization, right. including extinction, and that we should be looking ahead to the new stabilization, right? Which will actually be the new era. Uh-huh. Uh, cause the eras, I guess, are defined by a certain am- amount of consistency. Right. But that there's not going to be consistency in the Anthropocene because the definition of it is instability and change. Yeah. And so she's like, well, if we think about it this way, let's, let's try and get to a new stability as consciously, thoughtfully, and quickly as possible and creating new refugia along the way. Yeah, because she's tying it back to the idea that one of the ways that we can stay with the trouble and live uh, in right relationship mm-hmm. with other life in these times is to actually work to preserve the refugia that are already here, create new pockets of refugia, and just identify what is at stake with these banks that are our sort of reserves for restoration. Mm-hmm. And then that part also make me think about um, when we do point to the other, to the boundary event of KPG, like I think it's pretty interesting that the species of dinosaurs that survived were some of the birds because they could actually move around and that mobility and ability to move around to find resources made them survive when the larger or smaller, but they, the dinosaurs that were less mobile through the air were not able to make it through that transition. And as we're in this time of hectic, chaotic transition and a lot of species and biodiversity loss, um, it's interesting because some of the animals that are most at risk are actually migratory birds because a bird that lives in a couple places and also depends upon certain levels of stability along their migratory routes are heavily impacted by deforestation or just habitat loss and change at any of the spots along the way. Mm-hmm. And so I feel I, it's a pretty hard time to love and care for birds in the world and to yeah. pay attention to them. Yes. Um, so when I think about this and think about what does it mean to actually try and preserve refugia, I think a lot about the migratory birds and how if we're paying to attention to individual species, you know, like at our house, uh, I got in the habit of this from my dad, but I write down when I see the neotropical birds come back every year and I see the same scarlet tanager family come back from the tropics mm-hmm. every April, mm-hmm. you know, and so when I start paying attention to those birds and thinking about where they come from, then I'm thinking, what does their tropical forest habitat look like? Um, and I understand that regime changes that are leading to more resource extraction are going to impact those birds that are my neighbors in the summertime. Yeah. Um, so if we're caring about restoring refugia or preserving places that are banks of life, um, then we have to actually pay attention to the patterns here and understand that what may have been a strength in another extinction crisis could also be a weakness 
Although vulnerability. It might, or a vulnerability yeah. in this extinction crisis. And what can we do as ecosystem shapers and uh, change makers on our environment to protect all of the places that these migratory birds are going? Right. One more thing that she layers in as a possible definition or characterization of the Anthropocene is uh, from someone named Jason Moore from the World Ecology Research Network. And his formulation is that it's the end of cheap nature, mm. which is something that, you know, it's just another thing to sit with and another thing to think with. And that's that up until, you know, relatively recently, up until the last maybe even 100 years or something, humans, even the hyper-development capitalist, you know, uh, unlimited expansion, Western imperialist mm-hmm. branch of humanity could maybe think of nature as nature was providing a lot of things very cheap, mm-hmm. right? Like you could just find a river valley full of fertile soil and just farm the heck out of it and fish out of the oceans. And it just seemed super regenerative and abundant, mm-hmm. uh, like it would never go away. Right. But this is also the era in which we have come to realize that nature is not going to provide in that way. Mm-hmm. You know, cheap nature is at an end. There are more costs, all kinds of costs, from the increasing cost of fossil fuel exploitation to the cost in ecosystems from overfishing the oceans or cutting down the forests. So yeah, in this chapter, Haraway, she gets us up to speed with all the things that we've been talking about this whole time. The Anthropocene, the Thulu scene, um, speculative feminism, speculative fabulation, all these themes. And then she comes to a point where she says, the Thulu scene needs a slogan. And she uh, is someone who has coined a lot of different slogans in the past. So she's like, I'm known for my slogans. What's going to be the slogan for the Thulu scene? And the slogan she comes up with is, make kin, not babies. Uh, so this is her kind of, she's, she's thrown down the gauntlet here by putting forward as a slogan this prescription. And then, interestingly enough, she puts that forward and then the chapter ends in less than a page after that. Yeah, it's weird. In basically one page. And so she doesn't really dig into it and most of the good stuff most of the good stuff here is actually in the footnotes, is in a couple of footnotes. Um, it's, uh, if you're asking me, it would be footnote number 18 and footnote number 12 um, that, that have really good uh, extrapolations, um, elaborations, and getting into the nitty-gritty a little more on, on the subject of making kin, not babies. Uh, so let's talk about that for a little bit, shall we? Make yeah. kin, not babies. Make kin is something that we've talked about already, especially like in the intro, we talked about the idea of making kin and what Haraway means by that. You know, but just to summarize again, so kin, K-I-N, is the word that means like your relations, right? Your relatives. And a conservative and common way of talking about kin is to talk about your biological relations. Um, and not just biological relations, but in the sense of a genealogy, a family tree, you know, your kin, right, mm-hmm. would be like your brothers and sisters and your children and your parents and your extended family. Um, and 
you know, going up and down the family tree and sideways on the family tree is your kin. Uh, and Haraway, you know, unsurprisingly, an important part of this is she wants to liberate or expand the concept of kin outside of this biological family. So a big part of the kin making that she is trying to highlight here with the slogan make kin is the kinds of multi-species entangled kinships that we were talking about, you know, last time and all the times before, like the bobtail squid has kin in the form of these luminescing bacteria, right? And uh, the Navajo have kin in the form of their churro sheep. And all of these examples of like cross-kingdom, cross-species kinship, uh, you know, she also means to include kinship among humans that are not uh, immediately biologically related, making kin out of, out of your neighbors or other people who you have affinity with. Mm-hmm. Um, so making kin is very much an expression of this sympoietic making with practice of reimagining who can be in your family, who can be a relation. Who do you care for? Who do you care for? Who do you care about? Who nourishes you and cares for you? Right? So it's this expanded notion of kinship. So all of this is unsurprising that she is encouraging us, you know, to reach across the boundaries and form these entanglements and relationships. All of this is very consistent with what the book has been about up until now. And all of the details that we've gone into about how that works in nature and what that can look like even for humans. Uh, but here she's deploying that in a very specific way where she's saying, make kin not babies. So she's, she's specifically deploying the idea of making kin as something that we could pursue instead of having offspring, instead of increasing our biological family, our numbers, you know, mm-hmm. in, instead of reproducing more humans. You know, so it's not just reimagining relationship and getting outside of the confining boundaries of Western individualism. It's also here potentially a solution for overpopulation, mm-hmm. <laughs> at least partially a solution for overpopulation. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, she's like, everybody wants to have a family like humans are social creatures and we're designed to care for others and be a part of these communities but these communities don't have to be people that are your blood relatives uh we should think of like family creation in a broader scale way um and just at this level of make kin we'll get to the not babies part in a minute but at the level of making kin and encouraging people to explore the sort of polymorphously perverse potentials of kinship, I am like 100%, you know, for whatever it's worth for listeners, Dave is on board with this idea. It resonates a lot with some of the driving inspirations and the forces that have actually been in my life since before I knew what they were. Mm -hmm. Um, I've definitely, I've been a committed non-breeder pretty much since I was a teenager. I don't have children. I'm in my mid-40s. I got a vasectomy when I was in my late 20s. Uh, I definitely like that aspect of, of, of not participating in biological re- reproduction is something that I was on board with from a very early age. And it's, I think it's for different reasons than what she's putting up here. I don't know. 
I don't know if I was thinking about limiting human population when mm-hmm. I was doing it. I was doing it for other reasons, but which I'm not going to go into because what's the point? Uh, but I just want to say that these ideas about having fecundity and fertility and kinship be something apart from biological reproduction has been very influential to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in this path, I've been very... I've had a lot of affinity and been very nourished by my queer family and and queer theory uh, and just queer practice mm-hmm. around chosen family, chosen kinship, and then all the aspects of queer thinking and queer theory that allow us to think of these queer relationships and queer kinship and relating that are not heteronormative nuclear family Mm-hmm. and just the inherent queerness of nature. Right. Um, I think I would add to that that I also agree um, and have been deeply nourished by the ideas of like what kinship could look like and people caring for each other. Um, I also see within this, she doesn't really point this out, but part of what the pushback is when people talk about making kin and having envisioning ways to feel connection that are not necessarily about procreation. It's also a pushback against the nuclear family and that unit as, uh, as a white colonizer norm that has put down on all kinds of other people. And often within other cultures, especially folks of color, recent immigrants, they're, and I would even say like the rural white Appalachian neighbors that we have, mm-hmm. uh, people tend to exist more in extended family. There are more multi-generational raisings. There's like your, your aunt or auntie that will be as much a part of your life as your parents in some cases. And you might mm-hmm. spend as much time at your grandma's house as, or more than you do your parents. Mm-hmm. And that uh, I don't always see, I think Haraway knows that, but she doesn't always point out that there's a put, that part of the critique is of the nuclear family within this. Right. Um, but I do think that that's in there. And this is also something that indigenous wisdom brings forward really powerfully, mm-hmm. is this idea, this practice, this reality of kinship with the critters in your life. Mm-hmm. Like actually kin, you know recognizing all of our relations, right? Was that Winona LaDuke's phrase, I think? Oh, yeah. All of our relations. Right. Uh, and in fact, one of the references that Haraway brings in in uh, the footnote in the back, which I'm going to link to in the show notes, is um, a YouTube video by an indigenous scholar named Kim Tallbear. And the video is called Making Love and Relations Beyond Settler Sexualities. And... Among other things, Kim Talbert talks in that talk about indigenous kinship mm-hmm. and the oppressive nature of settler kinship models and how it's been imposed and used as a standard to judge indigenous kinship, mm-hmm. too. I also just want to quickly point to something in footnote number 12 that I thought was really appropriate that Haraway does in here on the subject of making kin. This was perceptive and I didn't quite see it coming, but she, she talks about how one way, one way that this call to envision a broader sense of kinship can go is 
working with people who are not like us or have different backgrounds in order to make change happen, right? And which I think is part of envisioning broader kinship networks, mm-hmm. of course, like, right? Um, but she perceptively talks about how one way that kinship uh, across people of different backgrounds can go that she wants to call out as actually inappropriate is envisioning a false universal kinship Mm -hmm. that papers over the real differences and the actual specificities Mm -hmm. of how people are entangled. And her example of this, one of her examples of this is the hashtag all lives matter meme that came out in resistance to the movement for black lives and the black lives matter hashtag. And this is, you know, kind of invoking this post-racial universal kinship where we can all just be family and be equal now without actually being accountable uh, and attending to the ongoing history of oppression that is like very much at play. And so, yeah, she's she goes out of her way to say that making kin is not a green light for bypassing accountability right and actually and actually living with sorting out and overcoming ongoingness of privilege and oppression yeah yeah so that's a good part But what do you think about the, the kind of prescriptive making not making babies part? I mean, I definitely have some red flags go off for me when I see procreation as uh, almost like a consumer choice. You know, like, so I see lists of things like you can do personally to help save the environment or save the planet. And it'll be like, don't fly as much. Don't eat meat. Don't have babies, you know. And it's listed, for one thing, there's a pretty big problem with us identifying most of our forms of resistance as consumer choices anyway. Um, mm-hmm. And the idea... Or individual Individual choices. choices as being what is going to save anything. And it undermines the idea of the more effective collective organizing and work. Right. But also throwing whether or not people have children into that list. There's a lot going on there. What do you think about that? Yeah, there's a lot going on there. I think that as much affection as I have for making kin in the sense that Haraway means it here, and just the beauty and the necessity of that, and as much as I just personally have in some way been in alignment <laughs> with the idea of not making babies, it's not so much the idea of it, it's just been my choice. Mm-hmm. But I've never prescribed not making babies to others, to others as something that is going to help, quote-unquote, save the world or something. And that's the step that Haraway is taking here that I am not so sure about. Mm -hmm. I think it's problematic in a lot of ways. I mean, for for one thing, she leaves a lot out of her argument here. Mm -hmm. Um, She is basically contending that the raw numbers of human population on the planet is an existential threat to the survival of species 
that are threatened, mm -hmm. ecosystems that are threatened, and maybe to the survival of like Gaia as a whole mm -hmm. or the stability of Gaia as a whole. And so there's lots of different ways to go at what I think is weak here. Um, and one of them is just the fact that she's targeting this number. She says that 11 billion people are projected to be on the earth by, when is it, the end of, by 2100? Mm -hmm. Is that what it is? And she says, I think that evidence of many kinds shows that 7 to 11 billion human beings make demands that cannot be born without immense damage to human and non-human beings across the earth. And she just kind of throws that down without giving you references to that or backing it up in any way. I think she uh, assumes we all just agree with that. So what do you think that would be would be contentious there? Yeah, it would just be helpful. It would be helpful if she fleshed out a little more mm -hmm. what she is seeing as the impacts of people in these numbers. So here's a couple of different things. Okay, so one of them is uh, she even refers to somebody named Michelle Murphy, who she cites in her footnotes, who has argued persuasively that population mm -hmm. as like an abstract demographic statistic is something that is basically a tool of the state and a tool of oppression. Mm -hmm. And that to talk abstractly about this number is not helpful. It's not a helpful thing to think with because there are people living in environments that are entangled with their resources and their environment, you know, and that's something you can actually talk about and think with. Mm -hmm. Like, where's your waste products going to? Where are your resources coming from? What, like, where is your water? Where is your firewood or whatever coming from? But to just talk about a number is something that completely does not attend to and sweeps under the rug all of the different specificities that are just homogenized within that number. Mm -hmm. Like, for instance, when 20% of the humans on the planet consume 80% of the resources, then how are we supposed to hold that fact with just the idea that 7 or 8 billion is a bad number? Mm -hmm. Because a small percentage of that number is having the most impact, right? Yeah. yeah. But like, right. And so X number of people on the earth does not tell you anything very useful about how many resources are getting sucked or what the impacts are of that number. Mm -hmm. There's an article that's been circulating online for a, a couple of years uh, called, um, it's on a permaculture website, and it's called Permaculture and the Myth of Overpopulation. And I'm going to put a link to that in the show notes. And it does a lot to like problematize that overpopulation is what the problem is mm -hmm. and not how are resources being used mm -hmm. and in what quantities and by whom, but just the number of people who are using them. For instance, just to throw in one popular, you know, kind of permaculture related observation that talks about like how much land is devoted to growing grassy lawns in just the United States, let's say. Like I've seen these statistics that say that grass clippings is the number one crop, crop, the biggest crop in America, which is something that are just like thrown into dumps or, mm -hmm. you know, composted in heaps or not even really composted, you know. And if even half of the land that was now grassy lawns was converted to food production or medicine production, then that would take a lot of stress off of expanding need to grow more food for more people. 
you know, and at the same time, potentially creating better habitat for wild things than a grassy lawn is. Yeah, what if every what if every golf course was turned into some kind of mixed use food forest or savanna with livestock and trees? You know, right? Yeah, there's other ways of going at this problem of people gobbling up nature than trying to create a limit on the numbers. It's almost like with a just having a critique of population growth, which I mean, that's not all Haraway does, but I know a lot of people who do. Um, if there's just an emphasis on population growth, then you're kind of assuming a continuation in contemporary food practices and land use as the norm that will continue as the population explodes. Yeah. And that assumption is really harmful in a lot of ways, um, but definitely does le- the future for life doesn't look that great if we're assuming that to be the norm that will continue. Yeah. With, yeah. or, with or without population growth. Right, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So, you know, of all of, like, the wild and radical interventions that Haraway is proposing, she fails to engage with this whole aspect that I associate with permaculture that talks about how land and natural resources, quote-unquote, are used mm-hmm. and how they can be used in much more regenerative ways, Right. Because the idea at the heart of permaculture is that humans can be beneficial Mm -hmm. to ecosystems and to the earth at the same time as they, as we provide for human needs. Right. And this is just, I think this is an unarguable fact. Right. Uh, that humans can be these beneficial keystone species like the beaver or the earthworm or these species that at the same time as we get our needs met, we create habitat, enrich the soil, do all these other things. You know, it's just a question of how do we make that more the norm? Mm-hmm. I absolutely agree, and I still have this thing come up for me, which is that the fact is this huge population of humans on Earth is absolutely built on a foundation of fossil fuel inputs into the food system. Absolutely. And if we take away that fossil fuel input, what happens? You know, what are actually our options mm-hmm. in the transition to using less to no fossil fuels? And what does that mean? You know, is that a big die off? Um, who, who suffers from that? And what, what's going to happen on the way? And while we can talk about building these, uh, more integrated and vibrant and multi and polyculture food systems, um, there's still going to be a transitional period. And that's staying with the trouble. Right. You know, and I think it's unlikely that fossil fuels are just going to get turned off like a fossil. (laughs) Boom. You know, there's going to be, yeah, there's going to be a lot of, there would be a lot of bumps in the road. I just wish that she'd talked more about some of these thorny issues. Right. You know, like I said, it's not even that I at root disagree with the idea of celebrating non-reproduction because mm-hmm. that's the way she puts it in the footnote, at least like we need to find ways to celebrate other kinds of kinship, babies having three parents, extending kinship in all these other ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, but anyway, lots of really important conversations to have here. Um, she also says, 
blaming capitalism, imperialism, neoliberalism, modernization, or some other not-us for the ongoing destruction webbed with human numbers will not work either. But she doesn't say why that doesn't work. You know, I think like, once again, people have argued pretty persuasively that neoliberalism and capitalism in general, with its logic of unrestrained growth, Mm -hmm. and that economic growth needs to exist for the system to even continue, is very responsible for gobbling up resources and potentially, but this is more controversially, responsible for increasing human numbers. Promoting birth, yeah. Increasing human numbers Mm -hmm. uh, because the growth of the economy needs the growth of more people as consumers and as producers. Laborers. Yeah. So she just kind of throws that out and says that's not going to work without talking about why it doesn't work. I think she's trying to say that we're all implicated and all of our choices matter. Mm -hmm. But in a culture in which basically our main option we're giving is individual choice, I don't think emphasizing individual choice is a great strategy. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So, like, right, right. why highlight that? Well, and I think there's one kind of important reason why. And that is that um, once you've identified overpopulation as the problem, mm-hmm. which is something that I think is problematic and we've talked about, but once you've identified overpopulation as the problem, then if you don't make it a question of individual choice, then... Oh, right. Yeah. Then what are you going to make it? A question of policy? State, yeah. You know? And mm-hmm. then that brings in the thing we haven't talked about yet, but is, of course, the giant elephant in the room in any conversation about limiting population numbers is eugenics. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would the, also... The history of sterilization programs, of eugenics, and of the very, like, racist discourses around who are the problem people who are the excess people and something we haven't talked about yet around this too is um eugenics also has a gendered element in places where there is state down prescriptive child ratios um and so you have a place you know like where china where they've been experimenting with a one child uh policy and in a place where it's much more preferred to have a son than a daughter, then you have really skewed demographics around which pregnancies are terminated. And so there's a really skewed male to female ratio. We need to, while we're talking about like encouraging people to find new ways to make Ken, acknowledging that we, whether or not we acknowledge it, are still in a misogynist culture that devalues the lives of women. For sure. Right. And girl children, especially. And all of these tensions can rise right up. Right. In really ugly ways when pressures get put Mm -hmm. on reproduction. Mm -hmm. You know? And Haraway is like, she's walking a really interesting line here where, you know, of course, as a feminist at least, but all of her other entanglements as well, you know, she, she comes out and says that she in no way would want the not babies part to be implemented in a coercive way. Mm-hmm. That coercion is off the table mm-hmm. and that women should definitely have the right to have babies or not have babies as they choose. But at the same time, she believes in like, she wants to normalize a new culture, mm-hmm. a new cultural norm that de-emphasizes biological reproduction. Right. But I think she doesn't 
as horrific as the history of population control measures and eugenics measures have been. And as recent. And as recent. Yeah. I don't think that Haraway, at least not here, spends enough time working on how her call to make kin not babies could protect itself from being appropriated or being made of use to eugenicists, mm -hmm. basically. You know, she acknowledges that it's a risk, and she basically just says, this is not what I'm calling for. But she doesn't do much of the work to ensure us that it would be incompatible with those authoritarian desires. Because what we need is an incompatibility. Right. So chapter five is called A Wash in Urine, DES and Premarin in Multispecies Response Ability. And in this chapter, which is also pretty brief, um, Haraway is talking about the entanglements between kinds of species around hormones and the pharmaceutical industry. And in the beginning, she's talking about her dog friend, Cayenne, who is elderly and has an ovarian system and is has lower levels of estrogen because she's an older dog. And this has been leading to some lack of tone in her urinary tract, and she is incontinent frequently. Mm -hmm. And so one of the treatment strategies that they have, she also has a heart condition, so she can't take some of the different medications that pe that the vets prescribe for this. But she is on a synthetic hormone, or maybe it's a natural hormone. That part's a little confusing. She's on a hormone <laughs> that is uh, called DES for short, but stands for diethylstilbestrol. And an estrogen analog. An estrogen al analog, right. So that has an estrogenic effect on the dog so that the sort of astringes and gives tone to the urinary tract so that she's not incontinent anymore. Uh, and so she, she doesn't dribble urine so she on, doesn't the dribble on the bed where Donna Haraway is also sleeping. Right, because they sleep in a cross-species <laughs> queer entanglement, she says, in the bed. Yeah, um, Donna, her partner, and the dog. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There's a lot of Funny word really play. hilarious... She keeps like playing on this idea of the wet spot. Mm -hmm. Um. I don't know. You've got to read it. It's like her, <laughs> her, I mean, you've got to read it to understand the right. playfulness with, with which she keeps looping around to the wet spot as a metaphor. It's so silly. But she's also, yeah. uh, being very open and making about her own neuroses around putting her dog on this hormone and her own, yeah. um, anxiety that is induced because of worrying if this is the right choice to make and which kind of mirrors the way a lot of us move through the world with all of our choices when we care for others and ourselves and what kind of choices we make around that. And within her research... Because uh, especially because DES has this kind of unsavory history. Right, which I don't know if she knew until she started looking into it. Right. Um, but she th was talking to friends about having her dog on DES, and one of her friends uh, identifies as a DES daughter, 
which led her to do all this research on the history of DES. And so quickly, within the, in, during the 1950s and 60s, in the U.S., a couple million women were put on DES, um, to presumably to prevent miscarriage, although it hadn't actually been proven to do that. It's just one of those weird things where maybe the pharmaceutical companies were giving a bunch of bonuses or gifts to the doctors. I don't know. Anyway, it was prescribed really heavily. And there honestly is not very good information about why, because it was proven to not even do the thing it was being prescribed for, which happens a lot in um, when you have a wealth-based system like, like this. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, her friend was one of the people who was affected by this prescription because the... DES actually led to increased chances of breast cancer and made breast cancer more fatal in the people who got it, who were on DES. And not only that, but their offspring were more likely to get breast cancer and maybe prostate cancer. Um, I don't quite remember, but yeah, uh, the impacts were on, were on the mothers and the offspring too. And so, as far as we know, this is the only pharmaceutical carnosinogen that actually is transplacental, so it affects the person who's pregnant and also their offspring. Mm-hmm. Um, so these two million people had however many children, and then those children also had health impacts from this drug that the, that was being prescribed to prevent miscarriage. So as Haraway is following this line and just thinking about hormones, she started starts thinking about how she had also been on uh, estrogen. Maybe we should throw in that DES is now banned. Oh, right. Or it's no longer used in humans anymore. But she goes to a special compounding pharmacy to get it made especially for canine use only. Yes. For her elderly dog. Which is part of the reason she was having so much anxiety around this option. But it seems like the best one for her dog. But the, the research into hormone therapy... Uh, leads her to re- remember or recognize, I guess, that she had been um, on hormone therapy herself in early menopause because she was told it would be a good idea for... I can't remember if her reason was bone density. I think it was actually a heart condition. Um, but through researching Primarin, which is the name brand of the pharmaceutical she was on... Because there were, just to interject, like for a long time and even now, the medical profession had and still does in some cases recommend estrogen supplementation Mm -hmm. for people in menopause. Right. But now a lot more research has come out that shows how it can feed breast cancer, it can feed ovarian cancer. It's problematic, actually, in heart disease. There's all kinds of complications with it, which has led to like a partial reduction in prescribing it, but not entirely. Right. Yeah. Just some context there. Right. Yeah. Um, so in her research on Primarin, she, as happens with most items that you end up on the receiving end in late capitalism, found that it was this product, this pharm- pharmaceutical was woven into a vast web of connections, quite of them, quite a few of them pretty unsavory. Um, and she found that part of the reason that this had been an effective hormone was that it was made from pregnant mare's urine. And so they were taking concentrated urine from pregnant horses and extracting the Premarin from that. Um, And of course, 
given that there were tens of thousands of people put on this at one time, um, there had to, there was a pretty big demand for this urine, and therefore, uh, as she did research, she figured found out that there were this meant the confinement of many many horses, hundreds at least of uh, female horses, and that they were con- kept pregnant, confined, and their colts were taken away from them, and and some were sold and some were turned into glue. Um, so. She followed the thread of her own hormone use, which she had not looked into at the time, because, like many of us, it's overwhelming to realize all of the ways we're connected through our choices. Mm-hmm. Um, but to reveal she, yeah. this whole complex, this whole kind of industrial complex involving mostly Canadian, it seems. Oh yeah, Canadian horses. farmers uh-huh. um, who were keeping yeah these like stables full of horses that sometimes, at least in the worst of it, could not go for walks, would never go outside, would have collecting bags attached to them. And we're often all kept the time. dehydrated, so the urine would be more concentrated. Yeah, um, right. So Haraway is acknowledging this history and her complicity in it, and. And just thinking about the ways that all of our choices and the decisions that we make in the culture that we live in now are really complicated and tie us together with a lot of species we may not even realize we're entangled with by taking the advice of a doctor to take a drug. Mm -hmm. Um, So... Yeah, that's basically the summary of what's going on in this chapter. Yeah, she traces these lines. It's kind of... It's not like a lot of the other chapters where there's a call to action. Mm -hmm. Right. Make him not babies or sympoiesis or, you know, all of these things. It's just a case study in interconnectedness mm-hmm. and in how she and her dog just trying to do their own thing and just be healthy and live a normal life in the conditions of the modern world has involved all of this entanglement. I mean, I like that the title is called A Wash in Urine, and her point by the end is that whether or not you acknowledge it or are paying attention, you are, you're in the thick of it, and you're in all of these messy entanglements. You're washing urine because of all of the different supply chains and uh, production operations that get a lot of the things that we use to us. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Um, Should we talk about the cyborgs? I think we should probably talk about the cyborgs before we're done. Mm-hmm. Haraway starts this chapter off with a couple paragraphs. The heading on the paragraphs is cyborg littermates. And the idea of the cyborg relates very much to what she's describing in this chapter. So Haraway is famous. Probably her most famous piece of writing is an essay called A Cyborg Manifesto. That was first published in 1985, got popular in the early 90s, and has been really important to a lot of people. And I think maybe we could just talk a little bit about like what what the cyborg is, what Haraway's cyborg is, uh, and how it relates to her dog and hormones and estrogens and all of this. And basically, you know, I'm not an expert on this, but as I understand it, I'm going to do the best that I know how <laughs> to explain this. Um, and so cyborg, just to like, just to start with maybe the popular or, or pop culture idea of the cyborg, the cyborg is like part human, part machine. Right. And so, you know, if you, if you lost your arm, uh, in an accident and they replaced it with a robot arm, especially if the robot arm was like super strong or it could shoot lasers out of it or something, this would be like the sci-fi imagination of the cyborg. 
the the human that's like augmented in some way by high technology and those kinds of science fiction cyborg realities are not just science fiction right uh there's people without human legs that can run really fast because they've had high tech running legs fitted onto their bodies but then there's you know there's like google glass or these things it's like these special eyeglasses that you can access data with and access the internet while you're just walking around and looking right so these types of cyborg realities are real does a strap on make you a cyborg yeah okay and cyb and cyborg and haraway is talking about that kind of but she's not just talking about that cyborg manifesto is it kind of it takes from that image of the cyborg as a kind of messy and impure human Mm -hmm. organism you know like is it man or is it machine you know um like is the is the prosthetic arm part of its body or is it an attachment onto the body like where does the body end does it end at the stump and then the other thing is not part or is it now part of the body you know it it brings in these types of questions contemplating that sort of science fiction cyborg brings in all these questions and she's she's kind of using that to articulate interestingly enough a radical feminism mm-hmm. that is anti-essentialist so cyborg theory and i want to be clear that like the cyborg manifesto is less about calling for the proliferation of actual cyborgs or something um (laughs) it's a framework for theorizing Mm -hmm. you know because that's the kind of person she is uh and it's a framework for theorizing a feminism and a socialism and all these things that, of which she was a part that is anti-essentialist and non-innocent. So reacting against, let's say, in feminism, an essentialist feminism that drew or draws very firm, very clear boundaries around what is and is not a woman. Mm-hmm. And the essence of woman is you know, that she is a mother or that she has a womb or that, you know, any of these things. And the concept of the cyborg being non-innocent is related to that and also very important because part of, part of articulating these identities that have clear boundaries mm-hmm. is that you can identify like victim and perpetrator, mm. right? Like the woman in the kind of feminism that she's trying to complicate Mm -hmm. is the innocent gender Mm -hmm. more or less that is the victim of patriarchy and of the opposing gender which is male Mm -hmm. right uh and so in the 80s haraway was trying to problematize all of this kind of discourse and to say that she actually saw more possibilities for liberation mm-hmm. in a non-essentialist, impure, non-innocent articulations of feminism, but not only feminism, Marxism, you know, instead of conceiving of like the working class as the innocent that are acted on by the ruling class or something, but to actually problematize all of these divisions 
And so it was also part of a wider move to collapse a lot of the dichotomies Mm -hmm. that polarized thought in the Western Enlightenment sense. So the dichotomies of like mind versus body, animal versus human, organism versus machine, nature versus culture, Mm -hmm. you know, to say like nature is the innocent thing and then culture messes it up. Mm-hmm. You know, actually, these might be dead ends and that it might be more, more productive of possibilities to actually break down the boundaries between, say, culture and nature and to see how they interpenetrate each other. Mm-hmm. And these are cyborg realities is kind of what she's talking about, you know. So instead of theorizing a retreat back into something uncorrupted or whole, Mm -hmm. she proposes embracing these cyborg realities that commingle these volatile and kind of risky categories. Right. So stuff like that. But what the cyborg manifesto was doing was not to try and tell you like who was and who wasn't a cyborg, but mm-hmm. just to sort of carve out this space for being able to talk about the cyborg realities that we all inhabit mm-hmm. as not a corruption of something pure and good, but as like something that we, that if we could embrace, then we could actually see some liberatory possibilities with mm-hmm. it. And so coming back to this chapter, chapter five, I'll wash in urine. Um, I see, I think the reason why she starts it with a paragraph or two on the cyborg. Um, and I'll just to put a, to get a little bit of Haraway's words in here. I'll read this one sentence that I underlined characterized by partial connections. The parts do not add up to any whole, but they do add up to worlds of non of non optional stratified webbed and unfinished, living and dying, appearing and disappearing. So that's a little bit about the cyborgs. They're they're characterized by partial connections where the parts do not add up to any whole, which is kind of a nice image, right? Mm -hmm. Like cyborg realities are messy. This wholeness is not really part of their world. Wholeness is is not a relevant term. So she's bringing the cyborg thing in here because, because it's relevant to what we just talked about. Because it's relevant to her dog taking synthetic estrogen, to humans taking Premarin, which is also an exogenous estrogen, as part of them just going about their normal life and how, and how we are augmented by technology. Mm-hmm. And in this case, it's not even really augmented. It's just supported by, mm-hmm. you know. So that's a little bit about the cyborg. I want to add that I think that cyborg can be a word that turns a lot of people off because Mm -hmm. it sounds so like techie and for people who aren't into sci-fi or they're often the bad guys in sci-fi. Absolutely. um, Yeah. That she's not, she's using it as a, in a positive way. And also a reminder that our ideas about technology are not just post digital age. Once again, this is contemporary society catching up with indigenous wisdom by blowing up the idea of the bounded individual. So in indigenous cultures, there is already a concept of you, of a person being more than just 
their ones, their very discreet self. They're connected to everyone around them. Their their tools are connected to their guides. They're connected to their culture, and those are part of who you are, you know. But as we had the rise of post enlightenment liberal subject, we have been swimming in the waters of I am just myself, mm-hmm. and so she's using kind of techie language to reclaim an idea. Yes, you know. Yeah, yeah, for sure. For sure, she is doing all that. At the same time as a big part of the Cyborg Manifesto is to undermine the nostalgia mm. for a pre-tech, right. more natural time yeah, time of living. Right, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. So it is, it is also about technology sure. in the modern sense the of technology. Modern technology. Yeah. Right. In one of its, I mean, it's doing a lot of things, uh-huh. but that's one of the things that it's doing. Right. Yeah. Yeah, she's never been afraid of technology. Yeah, I mean, we could say that she's never been afraid of technology, but she's also, I want to be careful that by saying that, we don't mean that she's a techno-futurist. Right, that's true. You know, or, she takes great pains to say she's not a techno Or a transhumanist who's uh-huh. like, well, let's all upload into the, you know, because there's a lot of other people out there mm-hmm. now who's, quote, not being afraid of technology, unquote, looks a lot more radically mm-hmm. um, hyper-tech than what Haraway seems to be talking about. And her embrace of technology always includes the body as a component instead right. of trying to transcend the body, which a lot of pro-tech people would like to get out of the body altogether. Right, right. yeah. I think that the maybe the distinction between this kind of embrace of technology and others is she would like to embrace technology to blow up the project of the enlightenment Mm -hmm. rather than to take it to its apotheosis. Yeah. And that is a kind of cyborg I could get behind. Next week, it's going to be chapter six and seven. See you then.